Welcome to the Soul Grit Podcast. I'm Ann Taylor McNeese, and I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. I also love Jesus, and I'm passionate about all things gospel and therapy. I created Soul Grit to be at the intersection of mental health and Christian faith. Christ followers need a place to ask questions and get answers about mental health. Join me as we dive into real stories and real questions from people who want to honor God with their hearts, souls, and minds. Hi, welcome back to the Soul Grit Podcast. This is Anne, and I'm here today with Dr. Michelle Bankson, who is a board-certified neuropsychologist out of Texas. Hi, Dr. Michelle. How are you today? Oh, Anne, I'm so glad to be with you. It feels like it's taken us a while to get here, but I think God's timing is perfect. So I think your listeners are in for a good show today. I sure hope so, because as I was telling you before we hit record, when I was starting the podcast, I was looking around at who's doing the kind of work that I'm interested in, the work that's integrating psychology and counseling practices with just real genuine faith in God and good theology. And I I put you on the list as one of those people. And so now we finally get to have this conversation. And it's perfect timing because you've also come out with a book recently which is called The Hem of His Garment, Reaching Out to God When Pain Overwhelms. And so that's a heavy topic. And so, Dr. Michelle, if you wouldn't mind just kind of telling our audience, how did you get into this field? And then how did you get to the place where this was the book that you're writing? If we go all the way back to my middle school years, and we won't tell your listeners how many decades ago, but it was a long time ago. Okay. I was actually a peer counselor in the middle school. And it was during that time that God ignited that spark in my heart that I knew I wanted to go into a helping profession, Mm -hmm. but I am very analytical minded and I am very um, solutions oriented. So as I went into graduate school and started my training, once I started seeing clients, I realized that I was not the best person for you to come see if you just wanted to come in and vent like Mm. you would friend. I am a great person for you to come see if you want to come in, you want to figure out what the root of the problem is, and you want to take action to make a difference. And it was about that time that I took my first neuropsychology course. And I was like, oh, this marries the two. This is it. (laughs) In a little mind. And I understand how the brain works, but that's not enough to understand how it works. Then you have to know what you can do to apply it. Yes. And so that's when I kind of took a pivot because I still did counseling throughout my my career as a neuropsychologist, but it was much more solutions focused. Yes. And that's a better fit for me because I'm good at telling you, here's the areas of deficits and here's where we need to improve. Mm-hmm. But then my patients have to be the ones who actually decide to do the work. Yeah. Okay. So give us the 30 second definition of the field of neuropsychology for anybody who's listening. And that sounds like kind of heady words there. It It, it is. And there's not <laughs> many, but neuropsychology is like the intersection of neurology, psychiatry, and psychology. And so a neuropsychologist role is to evaluate a person's brain function mm-hmm. and then figure out where the areas of inefficiency are 
so that then we can devise a treatment plan to get you to your most optimal functioning. So would you be using scans or assessments that you do in your office? Or how do you find out about someone's brain functioning? Both. A lot of times we'll end up sending a patient for a CT scan or an MRI, Mm -hmm. but then usually a patient will come into my office and we'll sit down and we'll have a a rather lengthy discussion about what's brought them there, what areas of difficulty they have. And then we usually do an evaluation that ranges from four to 12 hours not necessarily all in one day. Yeah. <laughs> and then I and then I go away and do my job and interpret the results and then have them come back and we'll do a feedback session and devise a treatment plan from there. So it's a very comprehensive look at every area of brain functioning, attention, memory, problem solving, language, motor functioning, all the above. And so does somebody just know they're having a problem and want to go see you? Or are they referred from another physician, psychiatrist, psychologist? Sometimes patients are self-referred. Yeah. Sometimes they're referred from the school system, mm-hmm. and but frequently they're referred either from a neurologist or a neurosurgeon, or like I worked for about five years in a children's hospital. I was the chief neuropsychologist in the hematology oncology department. Mm-hmm. And so we just know that cancer and cancer treatment can affect brain functioning. And so mm-hmm. I'd have the oncologist referring patients to me, mm-hmm. but it really requires a good physician to realize when they don't know everything and they have to utilize the skills of other professions to kind of augment their treatment. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm not going to derail us here, but my, my husband's a traumatic brain injury survivor and I'm a stroke survivor. And so I feel like we should have another conversation, but before we get derailed, tell me what happened in your life that you became an expert on pain and suffering. Oh boy. Um, where do I begin? Um, I was born premature, first of all, and, um, doctors weren't sure that I would live because that was back in the day and age where if a baby was born weighing less than three pounds, they usually didn't survive. And I did survive. But then three days after my third birthday, I came down with a very high fever so high, 107, that doctors were concerned that first of all, that I would die. And second of all, if I didn't die, then I would be mentally compromised the rest of my life. And so they told my parents what to do. And my parents did all the things, alcohol rubs and ice baths and you name it, and nothing was working. And so the doctors gave me aspirin, not knowing I'm deathly allergic to aspirin. So I went into anaphylactic shock. and, And as a result of the illness, and the aspirin left over in my body after they pumped as much out as they could, it left me with severe physical deformity. And so today, every single step I take is painful. And I have almost a two inch leg length difference between my right leg and my left leg. And so that has resulted in chronic pain in my spine and in my neck and in my shoulders. And that's the physical pain. But you know, no conversation about pain is really complete without mentioning that we can see people frequently who are in physical pain, you know, a broken leg or a sprained ankle, but there's also emotional pain and relational pain. There's financial pain, there's spiritual pain, there's grief and loss. And then there's also secondary pain, which is that pain that's inflicted 
through the words or actions Mm -hmm. of other people that makes the pain sufferer feel worse. And between my husband and I in the last 20 years, we've gone through all of those different Mm -hmm. types of pain. And so it was actually the publisher who came to me and said, we're we're watching and we're watching what's resonating Mm -hmm. to your story. Would you consider writing a book on pain? And if I'm being very honest in my head, my first thought was, you've got to be kidding. No, <laughs> no thank you. <laughs> no, because every book I've ever written, even if I've previously gone through what I'm writing about, somehow I end up having to go through it again to refresh my memory. And so I just knew writing a book on pain when I'm already in pain probably meant I was going to have to walk through more pain just to write it, which is true mm-hmm. um, because of an injury in my neck looking left, looking right, looking up, looking down, reaching forward to drive, to type, to write, it all makes the pain worse. But as I prayed about it, you know, I really, I've never heard the audible voice of God, but it was as if God was saying, you don't have to do this, but if you don't, I'm going to find someone else. Mm. And I really decided I wanted to be obedient more than I wanted to be comfortable. And so that's when I said, yes, I'd write this book. Yeah. So in the book, you go through those different kinds of pain uh, to help your readers understand, I think, understand like what kind of pain are they experiencing right now or they have experienced in the past because we all go through all of those at some point, but some more than others, right? So when you um, chose this title, The Hem of His Garment, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Because I think it's really special. I was really looking for a story, a true story Mm -hmm. of someone who had gone through all of those types of pain. And it really came about in part because as I walked through those different types of pain, I needed a role model, Hmm. somebody who held on to their faith despite the pain. And so in the book, I talk a lot about Job. I spent two years with Job, just really <laughs> studying his story. And honestly, I didn't really like the story when I started. No. Now I've come around and realized, no, this was this was perfect for where I was at. But the woman with the issue of blood, for your listeners who may not be super familiar with that story, this is a woman in biblical times who was bleeding. And back in biblical times, if a woman was bleeding, they were considered unclean Mm -hmm. and they had to step out of society and be ostracized into isolation because Mm -hmm. of their uncleanness. Well, she bled for 12 years. Yeah. She was ostracized from her community for 12 years. Mm -hmm. And as I put myself in her sandals, if you will, I thought not only did she probably experience physical pain from that bleeding, but I'm sure there was emotional pain. I'm sure there were questions of what did I do to deserve this and and what should I have done differently and what can I do to make it better as well as relationship pain because she's ostracized from her family, from her community, from her friends. Mm -hmm. We know she experienced financial pain because scripture Mm -hmm. tells us she spent all of her money on doctors Mm -hmm. and only got worse. And then I have to wonder, is there spiritual pain, which is that kind of pain where Your circumstances really cause you to question God and your relationship with God. Things like, God, I know you can heal. So why aren't you healing me? And I have to wonder if she didn't ask questions like that in the 12 years that she was suffering. And then I'm sure there was secondary pain, which is really people telling her every pill potion or magic prayer that she should have prayed to make all of this 
suffering mm-hmm. go away as if she didn't think of that herself. And then I'm sure she also experienced grief and loss, not just grief from losing those relationships by being ostracized, but the grief that comes from the loss of hopes and dreams for her future. So when I was asked to write this book, I thought she is the perfect role model Mm -hmm. because even in the midst of her pain, she held on to enough faith that told her if I can just touch the very bottom of Jesus's garment. I'll be well. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what so much of us need when we're hurting is just that thread. Just, you know, if we're going to hold on to a thread, let it be the hem of Jesus's garment and her faith was rewarded. Yeah. Well, I really liked how you incorporated so much scripture because as we already covered, like you're a neuropsychologist, but you don't just practice uh, like a secular job, right? You also are informed by your faith and informed by the scripture. And so each of the chapters, you're telling your readers about like how you relate to God in pain, how you relate to others, how you see yourself, how you talk to yourself about it. And so each of the chapters also has a way of encouraging yourself, right? Or some practices that you can do as you're walking through pain. So could you tell us about those a little bit? I ended each chapter with what I call the hem of his garment, Mm -hmm. which is really a promise or a scripture to hold on to when your thoughts are going awry. You know, we have those thoughts when we're really hurting with any of those types of pain. We have those thoughts like, God, do you even care? God, have you abandoned me? God, are you punishing me? And that's why I'm experiencing this. And so sometimes it's really hard for us to delineate what's a lie versus what's God's truth. And so in giving the hem of his garment, that scripture verse, I wanted to give readers a verse to hold on to while they're waiting for their healing. And then because I'm a doctor, you know, doctors give prescriptions. So I gave a prescription at the end of every chapter. And what it is, is just practical here. Do this yes. to apply what you've read to your own situation. Mm-hmm. And I always, at the end of every chapter, I pray for the reader because when I was really hurting and there were times where I didn't know what to pray. And there were times when all I could pray was Jesus help. Yeah. And that's enough, by the way, that is enough. Mm -hmm. But I could relate so much to the idea that I've prayed so often about this. I don't know what else to pray. And so I wanted my readers to know that I've prayed for them Mm -hmm. and they could pray the prayer that I provided at the end of each chapter if they don't know what else to pray. And then the last thing that I give the reader at every end of every chapter is a recommended playlist of songs. Yes. This came out of a really devastating time in my life when I was physically ill and on medically induced bed rest and kept alive on IV hydration and nutrition. Mm -hmm. And the longer that bed rest went on for five months, the more depression got a foothold. Mm -hmm. And being very candid here, I didn't feel like praising God. Mm -mm. I knew the command to praise God in all things, but I didn't feel like it. But what I found was that I was playing praise and worship music in my convalescent room 24-7. And when that music was playing, I would invariably end up either humming or singing along. So I did Mm -hmm. praise God, despite how I was feeling. And 
the reason for playing that music 24-7 was twofold. One is because scripture says God inhabits the praises of his people. And I needed to know that God was in that room with me. Yeah. And then the second reason is because I know it makes the enemy angry when we praise God despite difficult circumstances. And I have made it my life's goal to infuriate the enemy. (laughs) But it was so impactful to me that I wanted to give songs to my readers. I wanted to make it so easy that when you're in pain, I didn't want them to feel like they had one more hard thing to do. I Mm -hmm. wanted to make it as easy on them in their pain as possible to start moving forward. Yeah. Yeah, it actually gave me a great idea when I read the book. I was like, oh, a lot of authors are not offering that like multifaceted, multidisciplinary uh, guidance, you know, and having the scripture, the actual like task, like the the RX, you said the prescription for like journal this, reflect this, have a conversation about this, try this activity the prayer and then the the um, playlist gave me an idea for because a lot of times especially with grief or pain um like physical pain like we can't really do th- something to help our friends like i can't reach into my friend's body and make her pain go away or i can't bring back the loved one that my friend has lost and it just gave me this idea of i can't do all the things that i wish i could do but i could make a playlist <laughs> i've got apple music you know right. i'm gonna make a playlist and i'm gonna share it and that that can be just that one little thing that she can hold on to in the moment and have something to turn on turn on when she doesn't know what else to do you know Absolutely. yeah if you've listened to the soul Grit podcast for even one episode You know, my guests and I believe that when we integrate the power of God with the wisdom of modern psychology, we get supercharged healing, change, and growth in counseling. As a Christian therapist, however, I realize that there are many practitioners out there who are personally Christians but don't know how to integrate their faith into their counseling practices. That's why I created the e-course, Faith Integration for Therapists. In this premium five-module course, therapists who love Jesus will learn everything from understanding their calling to marketing their practices to Christians to adapting evidence-based interventions to honor our faith. You can learn more about the online course at www.soulgritresources.com courses and send an email to info at soulgritresources.com to receive a discount code. So that leads me to this question for you. What do we need to do in our pain? And then on the other side, what do we need to do when we're trying to walk with someone who's in pain? Mm-hmm. That's such a good question because when we're in pain, hindsight is twenty twenty, <laughs> yeah. And yet we don't have the advantage of that. Yeah. So let me share the hindsight that I've gotten through my own painful yeah. journey. Let's talk about a couple don'ts. Um, Big one is don't live in regret. Mm. Pain will make us look back and wish we had done or said something differently. Mm -hmm. Uh, But regret is not generally very helpful. And God is not in our past. He's with us right now. So let's say focus on him instead of regret. Very often, not always, but very often regret comes from the voice of the enemy. And that's not helpful. He wants to keep us stuck. And to the degree that's not possible, and I recognize this is not always doable, but don't make big decisions. 
Yes. Frequently we make big decisions, but it's based on our feelings and our Mm -hmm. feelings, while they're valuable, they will frequently misguide us. So if you're, if you're going through grief, for example, I would hold off on big decisions about whether or not to stay in the house or move out, whether or not to get rid of your loved one's belongings or hold on to them. Hold off until you start coming out of the fog of grief because you don't want those big decisions then to lead to regret. And I would say, don't isolate. Mm. The enemy wants us to isolate in our pain. And there's that tendency to think either other people don't understand or they don't want to hear about it. Mm-hmm. So I would say you don't need a big circle, but have a small circle of a trusted few that you can share with. Yeah. And I would ask a trusted few for you to have a warning sign to send to them when you need additional prayer support. Mm-hmm. Anybody who follows me on social media will know that occasionally I put up a yellow hard hat. Okay. And that that was not my idea. That was an idea given to me by a friend who said, Michelle, you really need to get a yellow hard hat. And I was like, excuse me, this is after my boys were gone and out of the house. So I was like, (laughs) and I need that for what? And he said, because when you are in such great pain that you feel like you can't go on without the prayer support of others, just post a picture of the hard hat. And that will be a signal to us to help you build that prayer wall of faith. Mm-hmm. And we will support you through prayer. Mm-hmm. So for your listeners, that might look like sending two or three friends 911 or mm-hmm. SOS. And just that simple 911 will say, I'm really hurting. Would you pray for me? Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be grand. All they have to do is even send a thumbs up in response. We're all busy. Life is busy. But That is a way of not isolating and it is reaching out for help. And that is giving those people the opportunity to be a blessing. Mm -hmm. I would also say, do live one moment at a time. Prayer or pain has a tendency to make us want to think this is how life is always going to be. It's never going to get any better. I don't know how I can live like this forever. Live one moment at a time during a time when my husband had been diagnosed with cancer and it didn't look like he was going to live. I remember people saying, you must just be living one day at a time Mm. with tears strolling down my cheeks. I'd say, no, that I can't even think about the next whole day. You know, about all I can handle is the next five minutes. And then I pray and ask God to give me enough grace for the next five minutes. Mm -hmm. So if we focus on living in the present and one moment at a time and not projecting the rest of our life based on our current circumstances, it makes it so much easier to deal with. And then I would also say, and this is a really hard one. It might challenge some of your listeners, but seek some ways to serve other people, Mm -hmm. even in the midst of your pain. Scripture tells us that those who refresh others will be refreshed. Mm -hmm. And you might, if you're struggling with physical pain, for example, you might think, well, but I can't go out and, you know, rake someone's leaves or, or whatever. Okay. But you could send an encouraging text with a song that you listen to, Mm -hmm. to a friend who needs the encouragement or text a prayer to somebody or send an email or write a card. These don't have to be big grand gestures, but when we will look outside of ourselves 
for who we can serve, I believe that God blesses us in return. And there's a lot more suggestions for do's and don'ts in the hem of his garment. But those are some of my favorites because I think they really give us some guidance and give us some permission Mm -hmm. to not be Superman or Superwoman in the midst of our pain. Yeah. There's that, that line of how do I be gentle with myself, give grace to myself, rely on God in this moment. Cause I don't feel like I'm hold it all together. And then I am empowered. I do have the Holy spirit. There is something that I have to offer. There is a way that I can care for myself and move forward. Yeah. I was noticing this week as I was working with clients that there are some people, I don't know if this happens to everyone and you can probably help weigh in, but some people have a really close connection in their brains between physical pain and emotional pain. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes I'll have a client who has had um, surgeries or or serious health issues. And anytime a pain sparks up in the body, it it causes a, an anxiety attack or a depressive spell or recently I had a client that had COVID and was immediately depressed afterwards after recovering. And I'm trying to normalize and give grace to my clients for them to know that this is connected, highly connected in your brain. When your body goes through something, your emotions and your mindset kind of follow suit. Like it's hard, it's hard to break that connection. Is that something that you've noticed in your practice as well? Absolutely. But it also goes the other direction as well. We can experience one of the other kinds of pains like emotional pain or relational pain. And if we don't deal with it in a healthy way, it can end up resulting in physical pain. Mm. And when we experience pain, maybe it's emotional pain or maybe it's relational pain. We can end up doing things that inadvertently contribute to physical pain. Like we can tense up and as, and, but we're not aware of it. And the longer our muscles stay contracted, then when we finally let go, it's like they're screaming. The nerve endings are like, oh my gosh, you know, I, I can't withhold that for very long. And so that's where we have to be very self-aware mm-hmm. of what we're going through, acknowledge it, ask the Lord to come in and help us with it, and then extend grace to ourselves afterwards, because we're not going to be perfect in this life. And we're not going to be perfect in how we handle pain sometimes because pain robs the best of us. Yeah. It robs the best of our time, the best of our intentions, the best of our energy, sometimes the best of our attitudes. Yep. And so we have to learn to recognize pain and then give grace to ourselves as well as to others, because sometimes you can't relate to another person's suffering until you've gone through something similar. And so I really think in general, and I think people mean well, but I think sometimes they'll say things that the pain sufferer then interprets in a hurtful way. Things like, well, other people have it so much worse than you, mm. or you have a headache again. Yeah. Well, that makes this person who's suffering feel even worse. They feel guilt, shame, condemnation, regret. When in general, I think people mean well. So to your question earlier, be very careful what you say to the pain sufferer. Mm -hmm. If we go back to the story of Job, Job's friends were wonderful. They came and sat with him in his suffering for a week and said nothing. 
And so often, I think that's a lesson to us that our presence in another person's pain is so much more important than what we say or do. But then Job's friends got in trouble because they were trying to tell Job what he did to deserve it or what he should do to try to make it go away. When in reality, God was like, you guys are clueless. You have no (laughs) idea what's going on in my servant Job. And there tends to be sometimes in our culture, this thought that, well, you must have done something. Yeah. You know, God's punishing you or you have unconfessed sin in your life or you're not praying enough. But Job 1.1 tells us that's not always the case because Job was blameless and upright before God, which means he didn't do anything to bring all, all that suffering. And I don't believe God caused it either. We live in a fallen world, but God allowed it because he knew he could bring good from it. So when we're walking alongside someone in pain, it's more helpful, first of all, to be present. Mm-hmm. Second of all, to invite them to share. I sent a text a couple of weeks ago to a friend and just said, how's your pain level today? I'm thinking about you. Mm-hmm. And she texted back and said, wow, you remembered. I feel seen in my pain for the first time in a long time. Mm-hmm. I didn't condemn her for her pain. She didn't have to give a lot of explanation if she didn't want to. But me checking in and just saying, I'm thinking about you. How's your pain? Let her know she wasn't alone in her suffering. And really, that's what we all want. We all want to know that we're not alone. Yeah. You know, when I suffered my stroke last fall, I, it was right after one of my close friends had been diagnosed with breast cancer. And so we were both really just going through it medically and raising young kids and, you know, trying to keep everything together while facing really scary diagnoses. And I, we sent, we, over the last year, we've sent each other texts now and then that have said something like, I'm probably going to say the wrong thing, or I don't know the right thing to say. And so what I want you to know is that I'm in it with you and that I'm praying for you and I'll probably mess up my words. So don't take offense to something that I say that was stupid, but just know my heart is for you. (laughs) That is wonderful. Because, like I said, I think people generally mean well, but if they haven't gone through something, it's hard for them to relate. So they don't know what to say. And sometimes it feels even worse to the pain sufferer when our friends and family don't say anything. Mm -hmm. But it's also up to us as the pain sufferer to choose not to take offense when people say the wrong thing and to extend grace to them, just like I would want somebody to extend grace to me if I say the wrong thing to their pain and suffering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'd, it's still, even with all of the work you've done and all of the scripture that we have that addresses this and all of the psychology that we have is just still really hard that we have this life that we know sin caused it. We know this is not God's original design and it's still just really hard. It is hard. It is hard, but we have a hope because of Jesus's suffering and because of his suffering, he's well acquainted with our suffering. And so when we're tempted to think nobody understands, that's when I have to turn to Jesus and say, but you went through all of it. He experienced all that kind of pain and worse. 
And so sometimes we have to rely on him understanding us more than anybody else does. And that's why it's so crucial that we stay in the word, that we continue to praise despite our circumstances, and that we don't stop reaching out for the hem of his Mm -hmm. garment. Because what if that woman with the issue of blood decided to give up right before going into town to touch Jesus? She would have missed out on her healing. And I believe when Jesus said, daughter, your faith has made you well, go in peace. I believe he healed not just her physical body, but her emotions, her relationships. He gave her a future and a hope, which before that she had lost. Mm-hmm. He gave her a testimony. And and those are all gifts that she got because she continued to reach out in faith that she wouldn't have gotten had she not gone through pain and suffering. And I think our God is such a redemptive God that he will bring good out of our pain and suffering. It just won't always look the way we want it to look. Well, I think about just the testimony of your life of multiple times in childhood being told you're not going to live and in adulthood saying it doesn't look good. And you use that as fuel just to push even further because you have a gift, you have a brilliant mind, and God was able to shape that and use that to help other people to figure out what's going on in their minds and their hearts. And so I'm thankful for you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. You know, I think that's an example of Genesis 50, 20 that says what the enemy intended Mm -hmm. for harm. God will use for good for the saving of his people. Mm -hmm. And when we get to experience that, it puts pain in a different perspective. It's like, okay, there was purpose in our pain, but when we're in the pain, it didn't feel so good. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Well, um, I really appreciate you being with us today. As we have said, the name of the most recent book is The Hem of His Garment, and you have other books as well. Do you want to mention those? Sure. Uh, the first one was Hope Prevails, Insights from a Doctor's Personal Journey Through Depression. Mm. And then readers asked me to write a Bible study. So I wrote the Hope Prevails Bible study. Okay. And then readers said, when are you going to write a book on anxiety? So <laughs> I wrote Breaking Anxiety's Grip, How to Reclaim the Peace God Promises. And then about two years ago, I wrote a devotional. And that's called Today is Going to Be a Good Day. 90 Promises from God to Start Your Day Off Right. Great. And those are all available online and in bookstores. So make sure you guys reach out to um, find those books. Are you online as well? Are you on social media? I am everywhere. (laughs) Most people don't spell or pronounce my last name correctly. So the easiest way to find me is to go to my website, which is drmichelleb.com. And then you can click on the social media (laughs) buttons or the podcast button or the books buttons, but that'll just save you the headache of not knowing how to spell my last name right. Well, I am going to spell it correctly in the show notes. So people can, can also find it there and follow those links so that you can see what Dr. Michelle is up to and, um, and access some of those resources. If people are in the state of Texas, they can also see you Mm -hmm. for testing. The easiest way is to find me through my website. Okay, great. Um, And then I'm going to just wrap us up here by asking you the question I ask all the guests, what are you doing for soul care? Mm -hmm. I'm actually taking some time off from writing. (laughs) Oh, 
<laughs> so I had, I've just turned in the manuscript for the next book that's coming out. And so, you know, everybody always wants to know, well, what's the next project? And it's been a really busy year this year for us between um, medical diagnoses and moving across the country and a son who got married and turning in one book and launching a next. So my soul care right now is taking some time off just to rest and rejuvenate. What are some, do you do activities or do you just kind of curl up and read a book? Like, what do you do during that time that you're resting? Yeah, that during that time, I spend more time cocooning with God Mm -hmm. than even just my normal daily quiet time. I make sure that I get out in nature frequently. Mm -hmm. I get out and I walk physically. And then I also, I kind of indulge in a little um, chocolate now and then. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. What's your favorite? Uh, sea salt caramel chocolate okay. for sure. Okay. All things sea salt caramel. Yeah. Oh, that's great. And then I take a little time to do some pleasure reading. I tend to read a lot of nonfiction professionally and um, in preparation for my own writing. And so when I'm taking some downtime, that's when I usually allow myself to read a novel. Yeah, that sounds fun. Well, I really appreciate you being here and making the time for us today and sharing all those wonderful um, concepts and tips with our audience. So I hope you have a great rest of your day and a good weekend. Thank you. I hope it's a blessing to your audience. Thank you. The Soul Grit Podcast is a production of Soul Grit Resources. You can find more at soulgritresources.com or on the socials at soulgritresources. You can email me at info at soulgritresources.com.